Hello folks, welcome to this Radio Stockton podcast. As you know, we're not really a radio station, and we're not even just about Stockton Heath. So, with that cleared up once again, the irony of this particular podcast is, I am talking to somebody from radio. After trying to synchronise our schedules for about a year, yesterday I managed to get some time to talk to radio legend and prolific ghostwriter Tony Horn in the grounds of his home. And despite us both being very tired, I spent an enjoyable and entertaining couple of hours listening to Tony weave words into sublime sentences. I was in awe. You'll probably be able to tell that. Anyway, Tony cooked some great grub on his barbecue, and we sat outside under the setting sun, listening to the birds and the breeze blowing through the trees as planes roared overhead. Anyway, here's the first 20 minutes, ostensibly about ghostwriting something that I wasn't even aware existed until a couple of years ago. As I say, we were outside, so you are going to hear some background birds chirruping away and the occasional plane flying overhead. Anyway, have a listen. (laughs) Right, anyway, you talk, you interview me or something or whatever you want to do. Well, well, all I'll talk about to start off with then is uh, ghostwriting. Because I don't know much about, like you said, I don't know anything about ghostwriting and where it starts. I wouldn't even know how to get somebody who wants a ghostwriter. In fact, until about two years ago, I didn't even know what ghostwriting was. If, if you'd have said to me, yeah, I'm a ghostwriter, I would have thought you were writing about the paranormal. Well, I did a TV show in Manchester about three months ago, and the guy, I can see on the auto queue the introduction, and I said, I think you better explain what a ghostwriter is. And I've had a lot of feedback about that show because it's something that, it does define itself, the word ghostwriter. It's really hidden in the shadows. I've taken a deliberate, different approach to most people in the UK. So I got invited to this conference in Los Angeles because on my LinkedIn it said I was the UK's most in-demand ghostwriter, which is something that I just made up, you know. But of course, you know, who's to quantify that? It doesn't mean that you're the greatest writer of all time. It might just mean you get a lot of inquiries, and I do. And that all started with the book about the late PC David Rathband, who was, you know, shot by Ralmo Tango 190. And I got every policeman in the country sending me confidential documents. Obviously, that's not true. I didn't get every policeman in the country sending me (laughs) confidential documents, but I got a few ex-policemen sending me stuff. Um, An occasional, shall we say. Yeah, and I think the thing about it is it's one of those things... It's not really a job and it's not a hobby, but to be successful about it, you've got to create a job like discipline. And I've said many times now that I don't really watch TV. When I did breakfast shows on the radio, I had to watch two hours of rubbish TV every night to be aware, you know, in touch with the common man. And my goodness, man is common. (laughs) But I write from seven to 10. You have to invent hours in the day that aren't there. And most people that write, almost everybody that writes, unless they've been born with a silver spoon in their mouth, has a job, you know? And so that sort of puts it in this bracket of like half a profession, if you like. It's sort of, it's a profession. You you know, the hourly rate, you know, the labor that you will put in, yeah, you're not down a pit, dated reference. You know, compared to the money that you make, it's a nonsense, but people don't know what a ghostwriter is because it's not a job and the people that are being ghostwriters have other jobs. Well, that's why I suggested to you the other week, although I understand why you you don't think it's viable. I'm big on audio, and I think there's got to be a market for not just ghostwriting, but because you've got the voice, (laughs) literally the voice, surely 
even though your name doesn't necessarily go on the actual ghost written book, it's the star's name, you could do. There's nobody better than you for every reason to do an audiobook. Well, that's very kind. I mean, just. Because you know the words inside out. Well. Uh, and you know the phrasing. When I the write. The rhythms of the sentences and everything. When I write a book with somebody, I say, this is how it's going to work. I'm going to ask you what happened and how did you feel? So the latter obviously taps into what you're saying there, the emotion, the tone. You also make through the back door quite a good point, which is that I've had a public life, you know, 18 years of doing breakfast shows. I am absolutely adamant with everybody that I do a book with that my name is not on the front cover. It'll be tucked away in page six. People will find out who wrote the book. And I think it undermines it when you see a book written, you know, Joe Bloggs with Steve Smith or something. Yeah. In America, it's very normal. They, they love that. And this is the thing. When I went to this conference in the States, I was with all these ghostwriters. There goes a the plane. Oh, I can see what they're eating, it's that low. But in this conference in the States, I, I always use this example. I was with these people that had written books, you know, how to make $25 million in 25 minutes whilst losing 25 stone, you know, by Dan Smith and Steve Shaw. And I found that I'd written books of much greater substance than most of the people that I was in the room with, even though I'd kind of half, was invited, but sort of bluffed my way into this conference. Well, I and suspect the reason that you are writing books with more substance is because the American writers, the ghost writers, are doing it purely for money. From well, what I understand about you, which I know isn't very much, but what <laughs> I do understand about you is you do things for passion. Well, it's very interesting. I had a meeting this week and I said, you might ask me at some point what my motivation is. And I said, I do books for the two R's, revenue or reputation. Sometimes I'll do a book because I think the story deserves to be told and it's going to enhance my reputation. Sometimes I'll do them because it's an out-and-out moneymaker, and I've got one on the horizon that I don't particularly think is going to be Shakespeare. Mind you, he's overrated, by the way. That guy, he's well overrated. Um, I used to say that when I was teaching. I used to, I used to, the heads of the department used to fall out. You can't go telling the kids Shakespeare's well, no good. <laughs> but I don't like it. Uh, why is it the law that you have to say well, Shakespeare the, is brilliant? The problem with Shakespeare, of course, that, and this is why people fall out with it, is that it's sold to you in the wrong way. Shakespeare's plays were meant to be performed, mm. uh, they were not meant to be read, end of. It's only preserved through time by writing it down. But, you know, sometimes you might do a book because you think this is a good piece of business and you might not wholeheartedly be attracted to the story. So that is a consideration, but you're right, I do things for passion. And in terms of the, the audio... I'm not saying you don't do it for the money because we, nobody wants to work for nothing. No, and That's you shouldn't. Fair. And But in terms of the audio book thing, you see, I mean, somebody that was very, very close to me, and I won't name them, used to say to me and they knew my career inside out they they said you're you're not hired on the radio for your voice you're hired because of what you say you've got a crap voice and this this hung over me for a long long time and 27 years in the radio business i've done about 30 voiceovers where i probably should be doing about 30 a week and you know making money and i hear some ads and i see less talented people coining it in but I... I think that's ridiculous. They say, if they're saying you haven't got a voice for radio, uh, you clearly have. Well, but again, it's one of those things, isn't it? You know, somebody that's never been on the radio that gets in a radio studio for the first time and then hears the take back will always say, oh my God, I sound awful. Um, even 27 years in the business and some of the radio that I've done, you still doubt yourself um, a little bit. And but the reason I like, I mean, to be utterly honest with you, 
I don't listen to you all that often, but when I do, <laughs> the reason I do like listening to you, because you come across, and you're going to say, no, 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 that's the opposite, but you come across to me as being somebody who's, and I know this is probably not accurate, but you come across, and this is what I like about it, as somebody who's just walked into the studio and is not ad-libbing, but there's a certain spark or spontaneity about what you do. And that comes across to me, and that's what I like. It sounds more genuine rather than you going in with a hundred sheets of paper and following a, a script. Well, for years I did make a lot of notes, and when you do a morning show, um, you know you're on constantly. Your next performance is only ever three minutes away. I'm doing what we call format now, which is a little bit different, but I don't really prepare. I, pre I think it's good to go in with notes, but I don't think you should have scripts and scripts. And I have never scripted anything, and and this is a mistake that people in radio make particularly breakfast shows, if you get the people on the show right from day one, and often people are thrown together like a bad marriage, if you get the chemistry right, Anna Foster that I work with in Newcastle, I've known her for years, she's my screen wife. I've done shows from Manchester, from my loft in my old house, and she's been in a studio in Newcastle. We can finish each other's sentences. We're that close. If you have the chemistry with a person, you don't need to prepare. You, you just need one note on a beer mat going, we're going to talk about batteries. You know, random example, earthworms. And I know with Anna that we could make it interesting and we could go to a comedy place and I know that I could always get out of the bit, which is what in radio we talk about getting out of the bit. Um, well, see, that's what I admire about you. When I do listen to you, and because sometimes I can't remember his name, but you have somebody else on with you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Let's not mention him. Right. When you do, Steve. Do you know, I, I couldn't think of it. I didn't know a term for it, but the only term that I could come up with was riff radio. And you're sort of riffing off each other, as if, like, you've said a word or a phrase, and then that'll bounce off, and then he'll say something, and then you'll say, and it's just, you're just riffing off each other, and it's not scripted, and that's what I think's great. Well, I've had pretty much 50 50 shows like this lady, Anna. And Steve, that I work with at the moment, Steve will admit that he's my punctuation, and it's slightly different. So the first example, Anna, has given me real genuine content. It's a real marriage. It's really intense. It's a pub conversation. And Steve is, I'm not saying he's just there to laugh, but he, you know, he lets me take a breath, and he'll interject only small phrases. And he is basically a technical producer, but his presence in the studio changes the way that I operate. And most people won't get this. They'll go, well, that's an expense that we don't need for Steve to be in the studio with you. We do need him there for technical reasons, but he punctuates me and sends me down paths without him even knowing it, that I wasn't going to go down. And it is spontaneous. I, you know, I can talk about almost anything. I've been on the air after every England football disaster, you know, 9-11, Diana, 7-7, seven, seven, and... See, I didn't think you were you know, a bit of a football fan. So I'm not anymore. I've fallen out of love with it. I think it's a disgusting well, so game. I thought you were just cricket. I'm a cricket fan, yeah. I hate football. I love the major tournaments, but what people need to understand... Well, they do understand. The major tournaments are events. Then it's not about the football. It doesn't matter yeah, if it's... It's just you, a corporate event. Yeah, you could... Well, you can watch the worst game of football ever, like England-Iceland at the Euros... But it's got that overdose of atmosphere, tension, energy, patriotism, if that's the word, xenophobia. It's got event status. Who wants to watch England-Iceland on a, on a Saturday in November? England-Iceland in France at the Euros, with all that around it, all the commerce around it, all the hysterical emotions of the fans, all the, the way it makes havoc with your driving plans to get home, your catering plans to get food and beer in, your work plans to leave early, it's events. 
you know, it's event TV, yeah. and and so I I only really watch football when it's event TV, but I can't stand it. I really can't stand it, and I think it's. Listen, one thing I will say, I had an argument with somebody in 1996 when they said Alan Shearer's on 42 grand a week. That's disgusting. I'm a nurse. And I said, no, 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 no. I said, it's not disgusting. It's absolutely spot on. And the reason it's spot on is because somebody is paying him that, that is making a hell of a lot more money on the back of his name. And that is his worth. That is his brand value. And there's a player going to Man U now for 290 grand a week. So goodness knows... Pogba, I think his name is. Goodness knows what the higher... 290 grand a week. Yeah, but the, the after, higher... After he's paid his tax, that's 290 grand a week. <laughs> the higher retail value, you know, the shirts and the sponsorships and all, all of that, the money is obscene, and, and we all know that the... The money is obscene to the everyday man in in the street, but it is it is only the worth of that player in in the context of a Sky deal, a Vodafone sponsor, a Far East tour, merchandising possibilities. And I fell out with people in Newcastle because they used to say to me, uh, "The fans are the livelihood of this club," and I would go, "No, you're not. The Sky deal is." And they would say, tell Mike Ashley to give us back our club. And I would go, no, you're wrong again. It's Mike Ashley's club. He bought it. He pays for things. You might go there. You'll go there whoever is, is running it. You have, and your dad sat in that seat before. But you have to understand those two realities. And they, they didn't like it. You know? Well, I, I've always been of that opinion. Because I, I, I don't really get why people have that. I mean, I, I did a podcast about this oh, a good while ago. About why people have loyalty to things. And loyalty to your town. And then loyalty to a football club. Now, I'm not particularly football motivated, but when I was growing up... Are we still talking about ghostwriting? <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> I know what you mean. Uh, yeah. when, when I was growing up, I didn't... Can we make this an hour special? Yeah. I'm only just getting going. Yeah, yeah. Well, it might be across the two or three episodes. I, I'm trying to think how old I was. I was probably about nine years old, and I was walking from where we lived at the time down to my junior school, which was in Stockton Heath. And this lad came up to me, and he was probably four or five years older than me, was at secondary school at the time, and he says, uh, oh, you, who do you support? Oh, yeah. And I'm thinking, I don't even know what that means. Who do I support in, in what way? Yeah. So as I said, the miners. <laughs> uh, so I said, Obviously, that's you know yeah. a 1984 reference, yes. and you'd have been at school in yes. 90s. Anyway, yeah, so, so, so I said, I, I, I don't know, and he said, I know who you support, and he hit me that hard. He nearly knocked me out. And as I was getting up, he said, you support Everton. So I was trained from that point that I supported Everton. So all through second, well, junior school and through secondary school, anybody said to me, who do you support? Everton. Isn't it interesting, though, that you could have somebody that might... literally knocked into me. You might play football in the winter and you might play cricket in the summer and you can have the same individual playing two different codes and they will behave differently in them. And you only have to look at rugby union and cricket and video umpiring, video refs, and the players' acceptance of decisions that is not there in football, but may well be because they're supposedly going to card people that dissent this season, which I suspect won't happen. And in cricket... Why won't they do that? Because they're spineless. But in cricket, they talk about the spirit of the game a lot. Nobody talks about things like that. They talk about, you know, money and sponsorships. And But cricket, they talk about the spirit of the game. You look at the Rugby World Cup last year and, you know, some hairline decisions and the players accept it. Now, some of that is class. You know, public school people play cricket and, and rugby union, like myself. Some of it is understanding the information 
And one of the things that I have an issue with as a media person, the biggest sport in the world is football. The Premier League sell their soul to Sky in 1992. Sky come along with all their gadgets and, and all of that. They expose referees, they use technology that is not available in the arena to the game in question, but it is to the fan watching. So the fans educated, but the players remain not so. Different in cricket, different in rugby union. People say, oh, the video ref will stop the game. It'll hold things up. No, it's one of the most exciting, tense things. And it also promotes the education of the game to the next generation. Only recently have we had, we've got, the, that, yeah. we've got the four, you know, assistant referees or whatever, you know, the goal line. Uh, we've got a camera supposedly for goal line technology. You think of that Frank Lampard goal against Germany a couple of World Cups ago that, di that went over the line and didn't. We've got TV exposing this we've got the game that sold its soul to the tv dollar and yet we do not use that technology yeah. within the arena it's an absolute farce it's a disgrace and the, the people should be embarrassed by it and i think that if you see how the people crowd the ref in sport i think it's down to two things i think it's down to class and education and i think it's down to money and this carved up deal that the broadcaster that has this technology has not used it in football so footballers you know footballers will watch a game they will know what they can get away with but if they sat down and watched a game of cricket they'll go he's not going to get away with that the third umpire is going to overturn it and it hasn't happened in football and it's still despite the goal line cameras it's still not happening you know but well, i think that's a really important point it never occurred to me that that it will educate shall we say some of the fans <laughs> no i think the fans are probably more aware than firstly they've ever been but also the players i think the players know what they can get away with it's very interesting. If you watch a game as a fan, and if you watch it as a neutral, if you watch it as a neutral, you'll have a more intelligent, balanced viewpoint. Any of those games at the Euros, you might admire the Germany-Italy game or something. You watch it as a neutral, you'll have a balanced opinion of it. Once alcohol and emotion take over, and it's your team playing, you become an idiot, don't you? You do. You look at these... You know, you watch the ITV news before an England game and you've got all these drunken, oh, sunburnt, yeah. yeah. face-painted yeah. fans yeah. and the reporter will go, what do you think the score's going to be? You go, 5-0. Yeah, we're never going to say, oh, we're going to lose 6-0. But there's never been a 5-0. You know, England-Holland, 96-4-1, fair enough. Yeah. England don't win 5-0, but, but fans are, are fools. They go, yeah. they've had too much drink, they've had too much sun, they're too giddy, and they go, 5-0, Rooney a hat-trick. <laughs> what? Where's the evidence? There's no evidence, you know? Anyway, ghostwriting. <laughs> well, ghostwriting. <laughs> okay, so I think you'll have to agree that's ghostwriting well and truly covered. And when I say covered, as you heard, we just talked nonsense for a while. Good nonsense. And despite the fatigue both of us were feeling, it was an enjoyable couple of hours. Now you've only heard about 20 minutes of it there. So I will follow up in future podcasts with more of our conversations where we didn't really have a topic to talk about, we just talked away, something clearly Tony is very good at, and, as I say, totally generous of him to give up some of his scarce time to help out a nobody like me. Now, I'm going to leave it here, but I'm going to play out with a track that came to my attention via social media, Twitter to be exact. Somebody suggested listening to a band from Liverpool, and I'm glad they suggested it. I really like it. Have a listen. They're called The Kulaks, and I'll talk to you again soon.
See you folks.